You're listening to the Business with Purpose podcast with your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com. This podcast takes you behind the scenes with some of the world's most generous entrepreneurs, from the CEOs of mission-driven brands to directors of small community nonprofits and everything in between. Molly is sitting down with men and women who believe in changing the world not only through their personal lives, but also their professional careers. And now, here's Molly. Welcome to the Business with Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly. And today's guest is extra special because we share the same name. I am talking with Molly Hemstreet of Opportunity Threads. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk to you today for a couple reasons. One, um, I mean, first, your name is Molly. So that immediately makes you (laughs) just a little bit extra awesome. Agreed, agreed. (laughs) And then two, you're also in the state of North Carolina, which means you're even a little bit more awesome. Yes, I love North Carolina. What Molly is doing at Opportunity Threads is something that is so incredibly unique, um, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, to start off, Molly, what I have all my guests do when we are on the show is I want you to give me the Molly 101. So what I mean is just tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me uh, kind of your history. You know, you know, what did you study? What ultimately, what kind of steps did you take along the way to ultimately that led you to doing what you're doing today? Okay, sure. So again, I really appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about my story, but more kind of collectively the story of the work we've been doing, which yeah. um, brings a lot of a lot of different pieces together. So I was born in Burke County, which is in uh, out west, kind of the foothills of North Carolina. Yeah, um, and I still live there with my my kids and my husband, and a lot of my extended family is around here as well. So I grew up in an interesting time in North Carolina when. Um, you know, a lot, I watched a lot of the work that was in our communities really thrive. I mean, I was kind of at the end of like the 80s or the 90s when um, things were still really thriving here, um, particularly in furniture and textiles. And then I watched a lot of that work just leave. So, um, you know, not necessarily overnight, but within about a 10-year period of when my coming of age, our communities, you know, went from thriving to really have, having desperate times. So yeah. the four-county area of our metropolitan statistical area lost 47,000 jobs um, wow. within that 10-year time period. And it, um, you know, left our communities with really high unemployment. And then just all those other social factors that come along with high unemployment. So, you know, increase in drugs and violence and all those things that you see when, you know, there's not a strong economic fabric of a community. And I had had the privilege um, during that time to go out off to school. I went to Duke and Durham there, um, and I ended up studying Latin American studies and to be a teacher. Um, and so I came back to my community, having spent a lot of time in Latin America, um, back to my community to be a teacher in the public school system. And that's when, I again, I really saw that it's very hard to build families and to encourage kids to be educated when they have, there's so much kind of unrest that's stemming from economic systems that, you know, their parents really have no control over. They're just kind of pawns into these bigger economic questions that people are, other people are, are making decisions about if their plants stay open or if they, or if they close or if they move offshore. 
Yeah. So I kind of fundamentally was driven by this question of, you know, how does work grow back and how does work look different? And for me, that answer was um, really a question about how labor controls the capital and how labor controls their plants um, and how does wealth stay rooted in communities versus kind of easily being extricated at the expense of communities and families. So I became interested in the model of worker ownership. Um, I had also watched my husband that was doing a lot of work with low-wage immigrant workers, um, particularly in meat pa- packing, which is a lot of, there's a lot of work in meat packing in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and so he was doing some organizing campaigns with um, meat packing workers in the poultry industry. So I also watched that process, and that was a very... That was a hard process because you saw incredibly courageous people standing up and even organizing their plants. But then North Carolina being a right-to-work state, ultimately you might win a contract um, and you, you might win a union, you might win a contract, but you're going to be slowed down and stopped from organizing the, from the court system. You know, it's kind of just the odds of the infrastructure are stacked against you. So I saw kind of this unionization that was very hard to get, um, a, you know, get a a foothold in North Carolina. Um, and then I also saw just this exodus of work. And it seems like, you know, there just needs to be a different model, particularly for small scale plants, because in a small scale plant, a lot of which is still the fabric of North Carolina, um, are these small, you know, small 15, 20 to 50 person plants. Those aren't necessarily ripe for unionization anyway. Yeah. So there's a whole workforce out there that's, that's small that needs support, um, and I think ultimately that's where we need to figure out a different way of organizing not only workers' voices, but their equity and the wealth that they're building for communities. So I see worker ownership as a real antidote to a lot of those challenges and issues, and so I came back to North Car- Morganton and started doing other community organizing and economic development organizing in the mountains with a really phenomenal organization called the Center for Participatory Change which is based a lot on the Highlander education model. Yeah. Um, and um, and out of that, we started Opportunity Threads, and we actually incubated in a, in a little worker center. Um, and then out of that just grew into a, the next plant we moved into was a plant that ha- I had been a sewing plant when I was a kid. And now we've just moved into 10,000 square feet, and we have 23 full-time workers. Um, some of those are full owners of the LLC. We're structured as an LLC, and then some of those are candidates for our owner, you know, coming into ownership. Wow. So I think my my kind of story is kind of one that's deeply North Carolina that also, you know, borrows from like the, the immigrant worker experience. And I feel very um, close to those workers and very awed by um, kind of that journey of the immigrants and um, the story of how people just as kind of the history of our community, our you know our country has built, been built on the backs of a lot of immigrant work. It, it continues yeah. to be, and as people are building new homes and new visions for themselves, and then I think also just this heritage industry of textiles and manufacturing, which I think is there's a real renaissance of it. But I think it can't just be that we make cool products or technological products that's all locally made. I yeah. think locally made has to be around models of equity and wealth. Um, or we're really kind of missing, we're going to recreate something that doesn't have lasting kind of effect or really create any change in people's lives. So right. that's a little bit yeah. <laughs> my story. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the 
sort of that worker owned model that you guys have, but it's so unique. Um, but I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's interesting because you are actually in, um, you know, you're in the Western part of the state. My, my father-in-law, I mean, my, my husband is actually from Hickory, Newton area. Mm -hmm. Um, and Hickory's, I mean, it's the furniture capital or it was at one point really the furniture Mm -hmm. capital. And my, my father-in-law has worked for um, a furniture company in that part of the state for, I think, 30 years or something like that. So it's been interesting hearing sort of his experiences with, you know, the furniture boom and then jobs just leaving. And then even the change at the own company that he's worked at, you know, just seeing layoffs and then hires and then layoffs and then hires, you know, it's just it's mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. the years, it's gone up and down so much. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that North Carolina at one point was I mean, huge for textile manufacturing, obviously, you know, I think people always think of like, oh, high point furniture market, like North Carolina is big with furniture. But I mean, it was really big with, um, you know, with cotton and textiles for many, many years. And a lot of those plants and those mills just left. Um, and even in the town where my sister lives, my sister lives in uh, Jamestown, which is right outside of everybody's like always like Jamestown, Virginia. I'm like, no, Jamestown, North Carolina. It's, it's very small. <laughs> um, but there's even an old mill there um, that's, you know, r- you know, run down and hasn't been used in years. Um, and it just it's one of those things. Every time I drive by it, I'm just like, man, like it's just such an opportunity that's there. So, you know, I love hearing stories of people like you who are just you see a need um and instead of just being like man somebody should really do something about that (laughs) you know you just kind of like well I'm gonna do it (laughs) so yeah probably if I had known what I'd known now you're like maybe I would have just let that one go (laughs) (laughs) yeah driven on past that old mill yeah so So, one of the um I mean we've we've you've kind of hinted at it a little bit but I really want to um talk some more about sort of this, you know, this employee owned model, um, you know, here in Durham and Carborough, I'm just kind of trying to relate for some people, you know, um, there's a lot of co-op grocery stores. <laughs> so we have in, in our area, we have Weaver street market, which is really big. And I think there's another place called Durham co-op. And it's one of those places where you can become a member and you shop there, but then you also are an owner. This is obviously on a little bit of a different scale, but this is kind of a similar model, um, but more with um, what you guys are doing is, you know, more with really getting the the people that work for you to to take ownership of the company and see and have a voice also in how the company is run. Um, so, but something else that's very unique is, and you you highlighted this a little bit as well, is that they are, there's a lot of the, the people are um, immigrant workers, but aren't they like all of Mayan descent? That's right. That's right. So, so a couple things, uh, you know, I think you've hit on that I'd like to respond to. Yeah. And then one of them is just kind of going back to this like job loss. I think we have to recognize that as part of our narrative, living in North Carolina, being in manufacturing, and then also kind of look at the trends now. Um, and not be afraid to say, you know, a lot of this work is coming back. It's not necessarily coming back in the same volume right. it was, but there is a huge trend towards reshoring. Or what I find more encouraging is actually people that want to just make here from the beginning. Because yeah. my, you know, my feeling is if it offshores once, it will offshore again. So let's grow those people and let's grow those models of 
direct to consumer and things like that that can keep keep more businesses viable from from the start. Right. And even though we have, you know, we've lost all these jobs, there's still over 30,000 people in North Carolina alone um, employed just in textiles. And then if you look, if you expand that out to um, other, you know, furniture and things, you know, it's even in just our part of the state, it's over 200,000 workers. So it's, it's, it's large quantities, even though we did take a hit, there's still a large piece of the pie to be had there. Absolutely. Um, So I think you're right in your description of the other cooperatives, what you mentioned were, you know, there's consumer cooperatives. And I believe actually Weaver Street is worker owned as well, so that you can be a member, you can come in and be a member as a consumer. But I believe it's also that many of the people that are working there are also worker owners as well. Yeah, correct. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's okay. It's a small world. It is a small world. Yeah. You know, I think it's unfortunate that it's a small world, but I think it's definitely a growing world. There's over um, 300 worker-owned cooperatives in the United States, you know, along all sorts of, um, from manufacturing to service to, you know, engineering firms, all sorts of firms. And the the, it's definitely a trend that's growing. the largest worker-owned cooperatives are, um, you know, two about 2,000 um, worker owners. The largest one is Cooperative Home Care Associates up in New York. Um, and then there's small cooperatives, too, that are two to three business, so, you know, two to three worker owners in their business. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what that's exactly what we do. We we do work where, you know, I think the, the general premise is, is is that if if you're a laborer, if you build you know the wealth of this company on your back and with your efforts and your ideas, then that wealth ultimately comes back to you. And that's not to say this is without um, structure and without process, because most most cooperatives or worker-owned businesses, I like to for, I, I like actually prefer the term worker-owned enterprise because I think cooperatives people tend to think agricultural cooperatives or consumer yeah. cooperatives, but um, I tend to think about it more of a kind of a worker-owned business because I think that's self-explanatory from from the get-go yeah um so again there's many different structures it also somewhat depends on the state where you're organized we are organized as an llc um and then we have a cooperative operating agreement okay we have three types of workers so there's people that have bought in you know they've usually been here the longest they've bought in we have a buy-in at about five thousand dollars um, and then we have candidates. So it takes two to three years to become a member of our of our cooperative. We have candidates that are being, um, you know, de- decided upon by by their peers along lines of, you know, um, how long how well do they get along with people along lines of kind of their cooperative ability, and then also along their skill. And then we have people that are employees, generally people that are newer that have just been in the process. And you're right. It's we're in an interesting part of um, our community. A lot of the immigrants that we work with here are Mayan. Um, they're from Guatemala. There's actually a book called The Maya of Morganton that was written by Leon Fink that was at, um, at UNC Chapel Hill. And so it's interesting that these folks come from a textile background. Yeah. Many of them have worked in textiles, and then it was kind of interesting that their textile heritage met our textile heritage, and we took on this new venture of trying to, you know, kind of create a plant that was really good for people and really made really great products, but that kind of set a new foothold of how work could be equitably equitably done yeah. in, a, in a very hard kind of low-margin industry. So That's so, yeah, I just, I love the uniqueness of it. I love that you're creating something that not only... Um, you know, because something we talk a lot about on this podcast and something I talk a lot about on 
my blog is just the importance of a job and giving somebody an opportunity to earn an income and create a sustainable living um, because I think it's something that we so often take for granted. And this is something that you have created that even kind of goes a step further and not only gives somebody an income and a sustainable living and a sustainable living wage, but you're also giving them, you know, sort of that that extra, like, you're, you're now a business owner. You know, you now are taking mm-hmm. control of this. You, you know, you have influence in the decisions that are made um, for the business. So, can you share kind of what does that look like when, you know, because obviously the members, they all kind of meet and they, um, you know, they, they help share in decision making and things like that. Like what, what kinds of things do, do they participate in? Mm-hmm. So that's a good question. And, and just to kind of flesh that out a little bit more, you know, I think how I think about this work is I think people that sit down and are behind machines and doing this hard work of creating things on a daily basis, you know, we all want the same things in our jobs, whether you're sitting at a desk or hosting a podcast, whatever it might be, or being a parent, you know, you want to feel like there's there's compensation, yeah. I think there's fair compensation. And then I think you want workspace to be a place where there's true human development. I think often what we do is like we run to work, we try to make money, and then we go out and, you know, we're with family or with, we're with community. And coming from a teaching background and having studied, you know, a lot around popular education um, I think it's really important that we think about how workplaces can be facilitative places that are really driving human development versus just being extractive. And so I think we have to think about how, do, how are workplaces organized. And I think there's a whole continuum of interesting ways in which work, how workplaces can be organized. And I, this is one of them, right? So part of it is that it's that you, um, you know, you're in a safe environment, you're in a stable environment. We work very hard to have um, work all, you know, 12 months of the year. This industry is pretty um, in um, well well known in the bad sense. Um, yeah. um, you know, having ups and downs, ups and downs. So you might work nine months of the year, but then you have three months where you're laid off, and it's a real higher fire kind of mm-hmm. um, cycle. So we really try to even that out so that it's a good, it's it's safe work, it's good work, it's sustainable work. It's um, you're going to be there, you're going to have a job that you can count on, and then it's fairly compensated. And then I think the other piece of that is, you know, how do people lift up their voice and make decision making in in the workplace? Now that that being said, we also have to be sure we're managing a plant that's profitable. We really employ tactics of lean manufacturing, so we work and work, you know, these work pods. Um, we try to, we can't throw out what it means to be just a good, well-run business, um, and we can't just be meeting all the time to kind of collectively be making decisions. So I think yeah. it's important when we talk about work-road businesses, that that's different than being part of a collective or, you know, having everything, a decision being made by consensus, which I think people often think being part of a cooperative means everybody stops and makes every decision, which is not the case yeah. in our in our business. So we have... The, the founders really, they make up the board. We have a board that meets on a regular basis. Um, we actually meet every Monday right now because we have a lot of production going on. We have both a government and a management um, kind of structure. Um, and then out of that, that board, um, we make decisions, you know, mainly by consensus, but then by vote if we can't, if we can't reach consensus. Usually we can. Um, out of that becomes management decisions, and we have a management team, so then decisions kind of, you know, flow flow out of that. But what we do is, you know, we sit down every week, we figure out what the points are we need to talk about, we list those on a, you know, we have a collective agenda, 
Um, and then for people that aren't necessarily part of the board or aren't fully part of the business yet, then there are mechanisms for them to participate. We really encourage things um, um, such as um, uh, conflict resolution. So, you know, in a, as you start to deal with more people, you know, you always have to just have space for there's going to be conflict. And it's not that you have it or that you don't. It's really how you deal with it. So we work with people to be trained in conflict resolution, things like that. But the main kind of part of where the decision-making is, is at the board level, um, and then ultimately those board board members are elected. So you have an elected board that's running your plant. Um, and then I think we also really work, in, importantly, kind of on this, this vein of how does this work create change. I think it's important for us is it's not just about kind of creating wealth or creating space, but like then how do people walk that out in the community? So we work um, closely with the Self-Help Credit Union, which is a great, another resource we have in North Carolina. And yeah. so we've helped all the owners be approved for home loans. Um, we work with people on being sure their banks and they have savings accounts. So it's really, you know, also how does the wealth and the connections that we're creating here then bridge into making individual people's and individual families' lives better. And I think sometimes it's important that businesses facilitate that step. Um, and we've had really great resources in North Carolina. I think I'm really proud of, of those things that we've been able to, you know, resources we've been able to leverage to help people build more secure livelihoods for themselves. Yeah. I just, I just, I love that. I love that you see, you know, like, you just you see the opportunity to create something that is lasting and makes such a large impact on so many things. I want to quickly talk, you know, some about some of the brands that you guys work with. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the uh, I guess I'm trying to think for the listeners, of this podcast that you may have heard of are brands like Zadie and Appalachia, Maggie's Organics, Wildly Co., um, Jordan K. Clothing. Wildly Co., I'm a huge fan of because I have kids. So <laughs> I love the clothing that Wildly Co. makes. Um, and I actually just listened to um, Haley on a, another podcast just a couple, a couple weeks ago. So it's really cool to hear sort of from the brand's perspective what it's like to work with you guys. Um, can you kind of share maybe about some of the brands? You know, I know that I think Mag was it Maggie's Organics was your first client? That's right. Yeah, they were our very first client. When we were, that was one of the things I think when people often ask, you know, how did you get started? Because there's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. One of them is that we had a, um, a you know, a, we had a, a market outlet to begin with. So we weren't just kind of starting this and trying to figure out the, you know, textile production piece um, the worker-owned piece and the market piece all at once. We had Maggie's Organics, which is a great um, organic company. I think maybe you had Benayad recently, too. Um, so they are a great company that, from the very beginning, was willing to give us a market and willing to help us develop. And we actually, we have boxes that we're shipping out today for them. So I think one one thing we try to think about in terms of our relationships with our clients is the same thing as the relationships with our workers. Like Mm -hmm. you can be not only more competitive, but I think sleep better at night and have more resiliency when you just have good relationships with the people that you're working with, whether that's the people that are behind the machines that you need to treat fairly, um, compensate, give them space for growth and, you know, have good communication. I think it's the same with our client base. So we've been really fortunate in developing really strong, holistic relationships with people that 
you know, have a lot of longevity to them. So I think, again, we're trying to build closer relationships where somebody doesn't just think, oh, I'm going to offshore this to get, you know, another, so I can have another, mar- you know, percent on my margin and make a little bit more money. Yeah. We look for those relationships with people that really, you know, we can be competitive and we can build, you know, multi-million dollar businesses, but at the same time, we can also really truly value each other. And in the end, that makes a better product too, because you have good communication, you're, you're invested in it, you're identifying error more quickly. It's, it's, it's good business and it's, you know, kind of like good for your soul. <laughs> well. Yeah. So some of the other, another one, our biggest client is uh, a really neat product um, that we make for a company called Project Repat. Um, and so we take people's um, T-shirts, old T-shirts, new T-shirts, whatever it might be, um, and we upcycle them into T-shirt blankets that then, therefore, we cut cut the, the front of the, the shirt and then we back it with a 100% recycled um, polar fleece, which actually the, the yarn is made at Unify. It's a, recyc- it's a Unify reprieved product that's been made at Polar Tech. Um, and so it's a completely upcycled and recycled product. We upcycle about 3,000 T-shirts a day. Um, and so wow. we're keeping, you know, thousands of pounds of, of T-shirts out of landfills. Um, we do a lot for, you know, Police and firefighters, um, people who've passed away in hospice, um, fraternities, sororities, you name it. We really can make any um, T-shirt, a T-shirt blanket. So so I'll tell you, I have (laughs) my husband. For all the hoarders out there, that's right. (laughs) My husband is um, what I call my executive producer. He helps me. So he's going to be listening to this, and he's going to be like, get those t-shirts out of your closet i literally have i have two stacks of t-shirts from high school and college i mean they're 20 years old and i'm i've been like i'm gonna make them into a quilt one day now i know where to go that's right well i would say don't do it we get these notes from people oh i tried this and it was a lot harder than i thought it was so i would encourage you not to try it but just send them to us you can very effectively cost effectively make turn it around for you um yeah and we'd see some really like vintage you know grateful dead t-shirts i mean we used to we see some classics and we actually take pictures of those and um and we do a lot for people that are kind of in those life transitions from maybe high school to college and these are all their high school sports store shirts or something but it's really cool so we i mean that's what's so neat about that it's really closed loop so there's there's zero waste so we're not only keeping all these shirts either out of people's closets or out of the landfill or dumping them on the third world market which then, you know, a developing country, that therefore cuts out if they're getting all these U.S. kind of random U.S. T-shirts dumped into that market that can really hurt local textiles um, and developing countries. So it keeps kind of keeps them here, repurposes them, and it's a, it's a really great project, and they've built an incredible company. So yeah. that employs about 9 to 12 people, and then we work with Maggie's um, um, we work with, you know, about 20 different small clothing or soft goods companies from all over the U.S. So That's so cool. Yeah, yeah I was in a yeah. sorority in college, so you know, I, have a, I have a lot of T-shirts. All, yes, yes, yes. All of the T-shirts. And I'm just like, why? Why did, why did I get a T-shirt for every occasion? <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. Uh, so, Molly, just to kind of wrap up here, you know, what is sort of something I, – I also like to ask people – for people who are, you know, just sort of kind of, I guess, dipping their toe, so to speak, in sort of this, you know, ethical fashion, ethical consumerism world, um, or people that 
you know, it's a completely new idea, a completely new concept to them. That can be really overwhelming. And I think for some people, they just kind of like, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> you know, they just mm-hmm. kind of are like, I'm just going to pretend like I don't know and just keep doing what I'm doing. But I always tell people, mm-hmm. and, and that's something I try to say on this podcast is like, you don't have to try to do it all. You don't have to try to live a zero waste lifestyle right off the bat. That's really unattainable for most people. But if we are all doing something a little bit at a time, or if we are all making, you know, intentional choices and, you know, kind of what I say on my blog a lot is purchasing with purpose or just mm-hmm. kind of creating with purpose, um, you know, what is sort of something that is important to you or something that you've employed in your own lifestyle? And, you know, as you share with other people, um, what's what's one thing or, or a couple of little things that people can just sort of do to make a lasting impact, you know, or or just kind of start that process of kind of transitioning into that lifestyle, if that makes sense? Sure. So I think it, for me, that starts like from kind of the inside out, right? And I think fairness is incredibly universal. I think we all can reflect on times, you know, when when we felt something was unfair and we can articulate why we felt that was unfair. So, and I think that, you know, taking it kind of outside the marketplace to say that word fairness, like encountering it in like an experiential place, because I think so much of what we're doing and trying in terms of workplaces is, you know, how do you create fairness in a workplace. And I think ultimately people can see that it's fair that you're treated well. It's fair that you're compensated for your work. And if ultimately, if you're building a company that you have a stake in that, or if, you know, wealth is being built on your back, that some of that comes back to you. So, and although those could sound really radical concepts, I think when we sit with them, I think those can be very universal concepts. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's one kind of the universal nature of fairness I think we have to re-encounter and then I think you're you're exactly right like we can we have an incredible amount of power as consumers yeah the one thing is I would say we need to consume less so I think we need better made fewer products and I think it's really neat that we have products that we're you know we're giving life back to yeah that's that's wonderful and then I think just remembering you know about those purchases that you make. And there are more and more really wonderful outlets for people to buy locally, to buy made in the U.S., or to buy, um, you know, things that are fair fair, fair, fair wage or fairly made. So Yeah. I love it. Uh, Molly, how can people who want to learn more about Opportunity Threads, learn more about you, how, how can people connect with you guys online? Sure. So there's um, just opportunitythreads.com. We also have an Instagram, um, a web page. I'm usually shipping and forget to like get to, have to know all those all those good things. Or just go, you know, I, that list you great, like you know, patronize the people that we're selling for. They're the ones that help keep us in business. Yeah. Um, so I would in- encourage that. And then we have, um, you know, and then also if you're down this way, you know, we're right off the highway, so we welcome people to visit our plants and see what we're doing. Yeah. So. Next time I uh, am in town visiting my in-laws, I definitely want to come and stop by and, and visit because I just, I would love to see what you guys are doing. Yeah. So we're just about 20 minutes from Hickory. So you're right in our neck of the woods, Molly. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Not far at all. Not far at all. Well, Molly, thank you so much for taking, I know Fridays are busy for you. So um, I have to get all Maggie shipped out today so, <laughs> and more 
600 blankets. So we make 600 of those a week. Wow. So it's, a, it's a big business for us, but we're, we're thankful for the work. It's, it's, a great, it's a great partnership we have with them. So Thank you so much. Um, and thank you guys to everybody who uh, listens to this podcast and is tuning in. And uh, the feedback you guys are giving is just uh, phenomenal. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. We are there. Um, leave us a review. Uh, tell your friends because that's how we are able to get uh, get this podcast out there. And that's how we are able to share the message of so many of these wonderful people and business owners that um, I've had the just the privilege of uh, talking with. So Molly, thank you so much again. Thank you, Molly. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. And again, you've been listening to the Business with Purpose podcast. And we'll see you guys next time.